0: Hello there. Thanks for checking out the podcast. Coffee with a Christian is an organization that believes that everyone is deeply loved by God in spite of their shortcomings and failures and that everyone needs the grace that was poured out through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That by trusting in his work, anyone can be forgiven and renewed through God's love. Learn more by connecting with a volunteer through the app or on our website at coffeewithacristian.org. For this podcast, I'd like to present you with part two of an extended conversation that I had with Spencer Porter, who spent almost 13 years as a missionary in the Ukraine, just after the fall of the Soviet Union. Spencer was kind enough to sit down with me to talk about how he both came to know the Lord and serve as a missionary in such an interesting place, at such an interesting time. And If you haven't heard part one, well, I highly recommend it. Just go back one episode. Just like the previous podcast, this one goes a little bit long, but if you can make the time, you won't regret it. It's great to hear stories about what it's like to do this kind of work. Anyway, enough of me talking about the show. Let's get to it.
1: This has always been a pet peeve about me. You know, you, I would just tell anybody considering going into ministry or who's in ministry, don't fake it. Yeah. I mean, you you, you, you can't produce people through your ministry by presenting them a false view of yourself Hmm. so where you have failures now you don't need to dump the entire contents of your heart and your private struggles on everybody but you you cannot be standing in front of people and representing Jesus to them and knowing in your heart that I am pretending to be something that I'm not you have to do a combination of things you have to get your life under control and you have to push yourself into more vulnerable honesty with people
0: yeah
1: um and i don't know that's that's i'm i'm thankful for a couple times in my ministry that i feel like god really taught me that one is this issue of how i was presenting myself to supporters the other was many years later i moved to Sevastopol. i was helping plant a church we had a ukrainian pastor named igor and uh, he and I got to be good friends, and a number of things happened. There were probably a dozen or more missionaries in Sevastopol, and there was this sort of wave of persecution. The uh, the city was controlled by a lot of people that were sort of a KGB apparatus. There was a heavy influence among the city governmental leadership of the Orthodox Church, who the Orthodox Bishop of the city, of course, considered us all to be like his mortal enemies. Hmm. And uh, they managed to drum up reasons to deport. I don't know, more than six or seven missionaries, and some of them were pushed out and made persona non grata, meaning you can never return to this country. Period. Wow. So, and then two of my closest teammates uh, were told they had to leave for a year, and that put me in this situation where I had I had been doing some preaching, some discipleship, some mentoring, some different things and the only way I could see to go forward was to withdraw myself from everything that was a publicly obvious ministry so I couldn't do the evangelism or the preaching uh, but I could focus on discipleship and mentoring and small groups of people and especially one at a time and you talk about the vulnerable so the the interesting thing to me is only when this was pulled away from me that I did I feel upset because I realized this was a pride issue Hmm. It's like, wait a minute, you're telling me everything I do cannot be noticed? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I didn't like that.
0: The donors yeah. may not like. Yeah,
1: I know that, well, that going not, going. the donors. Like with the donors, they would believe, you know. <laughs> I would tell them the truth and and they yeah. would know. They would trust me, and yeah. they decided to trust me. It wasn't about the donors, it was it was me. I want to be seen to be really spiritual and awesome. <laughs> and uh <laughs> and it was it was just the most amazing cure for me. So here's what happened: huh. this pastor eager and I we become very good friends, very good friends. And at one point, I mean, I had a I had a three room apartment, which is not much. I mean, Ukrainians or Russians will say a three room apartment, and they just mean three rooms. It's, it would be like a, an apartment with a kitchen. And it would be your one-bedroom apartment. Okay,
0: so you've got like a, a kitchen that's one room, and, and then you've got the bathroom, and that's right. one room. Well, and then you've got your— No, the bathroom doesn't <laughs> count.
1: So my point is, Eager, we didn't have a church building. We had a rented facility, and Eager had difficulty meeting people pastorally all the time. He had like five kids, four kids. Couldn't have them home. So I, I said, Eager, I've got an extra room. I can give you a key. You can just use this. You just take that room as your office, you know. And uh, it was quite a blessing. And here's the interesting thing that happened. There was some other discipleship and some mentoring. But as a result of his, his office being in my apartment, Eager and I are together like five or six hours a day. Hmm. And this kind of mutual mentoring thing starts happening. And the, there were so many things. Eager's a, I mean, I, I'm almost afraid to tell this story because it sounds like I would be undercutting Eager. He's a very smart guy. He and I had a falling out, and we don't communicate, Um, but uh, he was a very smart guy, but there were a lot of things he didn't realize about the faith and elements of, of preaching, and so he and I are working together for hours every day, and the interesting thing is I can begin to see that everything I put into him comes right out. I mean, we talk through a sermon and how you know he can approach it, and, some, and he changes it, and it comes, and, and it ends up being like four times better. And I know that a, a significant part of the extra three hundred percent came through me, but nobody else knows, except like these two ladies that I worked with. Hmm. After a few months of this, I see this pattern, and I, and I can just relax into it, and and it just becomes who cares? Nobody needs to know. I know. God knows and I've got a couple of friends that know nobody else needs to know there's no need you know so it was just it was it was an amazing period of spiritual growth for me to get to where I just didn't care that much whether really? I got any credit for anything as long as I knew it was useful to God and it was happening so that was awesome but those two kind of it's not like I don't have any pride that still needs to be built with they're still there but those two moments the moment of my early ministry of like uh, challenging myself, I have to be very real. Hmm. I mean, I would stand up in front of people and and, and say things like, okay, so most of this year, I've met with a lot of people. Very few of those conversations where I tried to do things felt like they had great spiritual content. I've tried and tried to speak Russian. I sound foolish. I'm not able to express things. I still pray for it. Pray that one day I'll be able to teach in Russian. Right now, it's not happening. Um... I'm lonely a lot of the time. Uh, in Kiev, sometimes it's so cloudy you don't see the sun for months at a time, and that's very hard. And it's it's the whole thing is very confusing. But I'm committed for the long term. Hmm. It's not a rah rah yeah. go thing. And then, and then I and then I would say um, people would say, "How can we pray for you?" And I'd say, "You can pray for all this stuff." then needs to be all this and that for that. And I said, "And I'd say, but uh, by the way, I need three thousand dollars a month." To do this for the next year, and I have twenty one hundred a month right now, and uh, and here's a sheet of paper, if you want to consider giving, just write your and I'll send you a letter and you can fill it out. And uh, that system worked well for me back then, and it was it was something spiritually and psychologically to get to where I could be sort of dangerously honest. Well, it became much easier the longer I was there because the 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 depth of my knowledge and the stories that I had were much more compelling and more interesting, but. Yeah, so that, uh, but I do think for a lot of people in full-time ministry, you have to go through these periods of humiliation. And I can't say what God's doing in everybody's life, but I think there are certain points at which he sort of asks you. So for you to have integrity before me, I need you to do this humiliating thing. And because you don't quite hear a voice and it's not on a tablet carved in stone, you can just sort of say no and pretend you never heard that. But uh, there, were, there have been several moments in my life where um, I thank God that he made it obvious to me that he was asking me to do a hard thing. And there was no commandment from the Bible saying, I must do this thing. Yeah, It was, it was just what needed to happen.
0: Well, I, I hear a lot of people saying, you know, God, God works in mysterious ways and it's so hard to discern his voice. And I hear that from a lot of people who I feel like talking to them, God is being really obvious in their life with what he actually wants them to do, but because they don't necessarily want to do the thing, they're like, yeah. so mysterious. I, I, I mean, I it's really you, hard. Like, or... like
1: well, It's easy for me when I tell you the whole spiritual history of my life to point out half a dozen places where God was clear. But between those, there's like... So I remember like towards the end of that first year and a half in Kiev, mm-hmm. there's a big forest outside of Kiev called Pusha And you can get this electric tram and go out there, and there's some little... Like country retreat centers, sort of out there. And I remember going way out there where there was nothing and walking off into the woods in Pushavaditza. And I was so angry with God, you know, but I wasn't afraid of being angry with God.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I read the Psalms, and David yeah, was David frequently angry. angry. Yeah. 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 So I'm like, I have permission to be angry at you. Well, if you, so get you- gonna well, I got to, I mean, I was not only yelling and I remember picking up big sticks and smashing them against trees. Why? Why?
0: Why? <laughs> you know, well, you know, I was mean, cathartic, if anything else, God, if you're going to be mad at anyone, God can take it at yeah. least. And I think he he understands yeah. uh, more than a lot of other people do. And I think he understands better than anyone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That said, you know, it's I think he helps you work and through that And he gives anger.
1: you long, you know, uh, what is it, uh, Thomas Kempis, whatever his book is. He's like a 14th century German monk or something. Hmm. But anyway, he, there's this place in his book, The Imitation of Christ is what he wrote. And I think there's this place where he says, um, he talks about how when a child is learning to walk. You'll see this soon, Ben. <laughs> a that child's is. learning to walk and they stand up and like they're in a constant state of falling down. Yeah. You know, There's no like just standing there they're stand- and they're grabbing onto something. And so you're holding their hand and they're stumbling and they want you to, but then you take your hand away. Well, you know, you've got to take your hand away because the point of this is not for daddy to walk you for the rest of your life. You know, yeah. it's the joy of walking without daddy that you need to get to. And uh, Thomas Akempis Kempis put this better than that, but it basically using that same analogy, that that's what God does with us. There are times in our life, especially brand new Christian times, where it's like he's He's standing behind us, but he's holding both of our hands. Yeah. And we're walking and we're like, this is awesome. I can do all this stuff. you know? And then he takes away one hand. And then, he ta- and then at some point he's like, you're ready. And I'm going to leave you in the, you're not going to die, but I'm going to leave you in the desert. You're not going to see, hear, smell, or know of me for months now. Here we go. And man, the emptiness is colossal. Oh, yeah. And uh, there were many periods like that. Hmm. And, um, I, I think it was also crucial for me. R- Russian and Ukrainian people taught me many things. You and I talked about this list a, little, a few weeks ago. They are, the Slavic people I got to know, have a much, much deeper uh, kind of friendship than is normal. In the hmm. United States, now I don't say nobody here has it. I just say it's rare here and it's normal there. And uh, honestly, some of this is probably just poverty, hmm. um, because especially during Soviet times. I mean, you'd get to where you know, you know, you might not get paid, or you might get paid almost nothing, or there were periods of time where. You got paid with money, and then there was these separate coupons, which were like permission slips to use the money. So you might have the money, but you don't have permission. I mean, it was just survival. The Soviet Union, yeah, did not make survival. No, they made uh, what do you call it? Um, eking out an existence. They made that very possible for you, but it was time-consuming and exhausting. And then you, you were you were allowed certain things and allowed other things. So you end up like having to, you know, so for example, you'd have a neighbor or he'd get to be your friend and he'd be like, he'd be like, oh, you know, you work at the tire factory and I work at the bread factory. And I'm like, look, I can get you a loaf of bread, extra loaf of bread every week for your family. And can you think you can get me a tire? And you would steal some tires for him and he would steal some bread for you. Well, this is setting aside the ethics of all that. That's, that's what survival was for much of this time. You, you, how close is your friendship to this guy? You are depending on each other. Yeah, The tires are probably not as good as illustration as the bread. You depend on each other to survive. So you develop a small circle of friends and uh, within that circle of friends, the commitment to love is a totality that would shock most Americans and freak them out big time. You know, I think in some ways I had to do enough emotional suffering to be ready to receive that and be thankful for it. And then it was delightful
0: once it became normal for me. And now ever since I've been back in the States, I miss it. So you've told me what kind of like the day-to-day life was like for the first few years. Yeah. How did that evolve? How did that change? So and... I would put,
1: I could put my ministry in three periods. So there's the first years in Kiev. Um, mm. Now you've heard about a lot of that. Um, the, the the So three, four years in Kiev and the later of those years, I'm speaking Russian reasonably well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm discipling some guys. I've got a small discipleship group of guys. And, uh, and, um, and I'm doing a lot of stuff with InterVarsity in different places. So then the, the second period, I'm invited to go to Sevastopol. And that's, I don't know if it's like five 600 miles. It's a 20-hour train ride between Kiev and Sevastopol. Oh. And um, you probably can't go on that train anymore because Sevastopol is now a different country. And, uh, and then after five, six years in Sevastopol, I went back to Kiev and did something totally different for like two or three years. But, um, those periods, so that first period, the first two of those three or four years in Kiev, just really just a lot of pain and drama and frustration. But, you know, but, you know, in a sense, it was a, a testing of my commitment, Hmm. And then the latter two years, there was a good amount of success. Then I had uh, two ladies from my church. So my church had uh, a couple in Kiev, and then they had two ladies, one of them has since passed away, in Sevastopol. And they were both in their 60s, say. They were uh, very experienced Christian school teachers. And they had gone down to Sevastopol uh, probably a year before I came to Kiev. And one of the great strengths they had was that they were really excellent at something. They were excellent teachers. They really, I think there's like lists of like the top 100 teachers in the country at different times. And I think they've been on. So really excellent. So people who are like uh, in their retirement years that don't think they can think about these two ladies, neither one of them ever got excellent Russian. Uh, I'm certain that I've met more than 50 missionaries, most successful bar none these two ladies.
0: What does success look like for you or for for these two? Ladies? So uh, the number of
1: people that they have effectively reached, not all of those people have made, they've managed to touch the hearts of a larger number of a large number of people. So they went down there and they start teaching in a school. So I don't have the whole history kind of lined up in my head, but basically they go down there, they get invited into this City, which was uh, Sevastopol, was like the equivalent of Norfolk, where you know we have the largest navy base in the world there. Well, it's a big navy base, Russian navy base, and shipyards. And because there's so much military, it was for years considered to be a closed city, which meant even as a Ukrainian citizen, you couldn't go to this Ukrainian city without permission to go there. Wow! So it was a really unique set of circumstances that they were allowed in when they were, and <clears throat> and they go in and they're teaching English, and they're allowed to teach Bible, and they're teaching a little American. History and different things, probably, and then they they saw that the teachers really they really did not have good teaching methods. I mean it, it was not uncommon for a teacher to yell at a child. I mean, I saw teachers yelling at you know fourth, fifth graders until they were crying, and it, they don't they really
0: yeah
1: it, it, a lot to learn now there are some excellent teachers, but there's not a well Thought through system
0: yeah.
1: of how you nurture the person, so they begin training the teachers. They begin teaching the students. Then they have a Bible study for students. Then they have a Bible study for teachers. And for I think a couple of years, nobody became a Christian. And then one person, uh, one teacher, and then the second person was the vice principal of the school, who currently is my mother-in-law. Huh. And uh, and then it, it was, was like living
0: a, with you, right?
1: Yes. Oh wow. And then at some point, it was like a dam broke. And just like dozens of students and a number of teachers all became Christians within a year or two. And uh, that's what I'm talking about by success. And yeah. and and also, I would work in the do ministry with them, and I would communicate with the people who communicated with them. And you see, you just see the impact they've had on people. So I'm not talking about huge numbers, although the numbers were impressive. I'm just talking about seeing the impact. I mean, I I could have my first years of ministry in kiev and i'm suffering and praying and there's a little this here and there but then like i add up those first two years and i'm like i don't know what actually happened what did people pay me for other than like for me to be broken humiliated and learn some russian i don't know (laughs) i don't know that there was a big return on investment for for that year uh and and then but whereas the results from these ladies it was phenomenal it was just lots and lots of people and a church grew out of that ministry so anyway what happens i do in my first three years in kiev i come back to the states i do seminary for a year i go back to ukraine and before i go back to ukraine um these two ladies cindy and Avi, ask me well instead of going back to kiev could i go down to sevastopol because they're telling me we've gotten scads of people have become christians most of them girls but now an increasing number of young men have become christians and we are like in our 60s single females and they need some discipleship and we know you speak Russian and we hear that you really want to do discipleship. So Stuart. why would you not come? Yeah. So I moved. Uh, I mean, I went down there and visited them once or twice. And uh, and then I moved down there. And so for the next several years of my life, I'm about, I'm doing a little bit of teaching in the school. And and I go from my involvement with the school becomes less and less. And with the church, it becomes more and more until I'm sort of, uh, I don't know. I'm sort of co-pastoring a church. I mean, I was not a pastor, but I'm helping the pastor, pastor. Mm. And then the, the, the we train elders, uh, so kind of getting the elder board working and helping them understand that responsibility. Um, lots of discipleship, um, evangelism. I was never a great evangelist. I was really a more effective discipler. So sometimes other Christians would bring new Christians to me, and that was when I was really good. And I was a very good teacher, but uh, in Sevastopol, because, I mean, I got to where my Russian, to where I could preach in Russian, but there was kind of an intense, um, that persecution. I couldn't do preaching in Russian because it would have resulted in my immediate eviction from the country. Hmm. But then after a year or two, I get uh, my visa status changes to where I can be recognized as an official religious worker. So, But before that, I would be classified as an English teacher. And in the views of the Ukrainian authorities, they didn't like evangelical Christians, and you're here, we give you permission to be here so that you can teach, not so you can, so that for them that would have been justification to deport me.
0: Wow.
1: And uh, but then I get an official status as like a religious worker, and then I can do whatever I want to do. And I started preaching more regularly and I enjoyed that. And I trained another a number of young guys who gave them lessons on how to preach, and uh we wrote the church constitution together. And uh so I mean, for those years in Sevastopol, um, my days would be, so I would often sleep quite late because all the stuff I would do would be in the evenings. So like you're starting your Bible study at 7, it goes to 9 or 9.30 or 10, and then I get home, I'm wound up. I mean, my body's not going to fall asleep until 1, and uh, so so that ends up being... Which is fine,
0: you know. It's the night shift.
1: It's it is it is the night shift. I just don't want hearers to think, oh, he just slipped until eleven o'clock <laughs> every day, we gave him money for that, you know. Um, yeah. So my days, there would probably be two, three meetings, like maybe one or two, like Bible study type meetings. Yeah. Most mornings, I would wake up and my pastor Eager was in my apartment, so he was always working on something, uh, whether it was planning his sermon or planning a ministry or or people coming in and counseling. So a lot of the times I would just do all that with him. I mean, he, was, he and I were the same age. And interestingly, he went to Donetsk Christian University, which was started by Denver Seminary. So we, we had studied under a lot of the same professors even. Wow. Yeah. So we would a lot of his pastoral duties we would just do together. And that was really cool. I mean, as a pastor, he was young. He had been a converted, had been a drug, drug addict and sort of a gang member before. So it worked out great. So during the day, there would be random conversations and pastoral interactions with Eager and with other church members who would come by because it became like the church office. And then there would be planning for, of sermons in review, sometimes my sermons, but most of them Eager's sermons that we're kind of digesting through together. Um, and then two or th- I guess probably most nights there would be something. Sometimes like there would be a student Bible study for university student kids or youth ones, and then a grown up one, and then I would have a discipleship group where it might be as many as six or seven guys, and we would sort of be reading through something together and praying and doing accountability and different stuff. And Sundays were a big day. And then uh, as a missionary, um, a big part of your job is hospitality. And that was hard for me because I'm a little bit more of an introvert. You know, I, I, I do love people, and I want to be around. But then at, one, at some point, I want to say, stop, done now. And uh, it, especially among Slavic people, just because you say done, they're not turning off. No. <laughs> it's like, no, what are you kidding? Uh, hey, are you home? Oh, I know. I didn't call. Well, you got your refrigerator. I'm hungry. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, if you can't enjoy that, you're going to blow your brains out. Uh. So that was period two was in Sevastopol. Now, my last year or so in Sevastopol, I've got to tell you, when I, when I talk about the conflicts within ministry and missionary stuff... I've met many other missionaries and the irony is like, I can tell you this story and I've met other missionaries where the stories of conflict with their native people they're working with and them were so painful. And so the stories are so identical. You could just swap the names out. Hmm. It's it's kind of amazing. Now, some of this is normal. I mean, you come in and you're the foreigner and you disciple people what, what you want. You don't want to carry this ministry. You want to give it over, but That's you right. want to give it over to people that are prepared you don't want to give it all over right away and all that kind of stuff, but at some at some point, it's divulging away from you, and that process is often not smooth. Um, and you ha- you you kind of have to accept that it has to happen. I don't know that the, 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 this is all not strictly true because I was never the pastor of this church, you know, although I think people related to me as if I was, and. Um, Eager and I, I Eager became to feel increasingly threatened by everything I did. And it was mm. strange. It was, it was almost like where you read about a root of bitterness. I mean, from being extremely close friends, I mean, like brothers for years, it became where, I mean, I'm convinced if Eager saw me cross the street, in Eager's head, there would be, why is he crossing the street? What mm. is he doing on the other Yeah, I mean, it was, it was bizarre. It, 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 he began to view everything I did with some kind of suspicion, as if I was constantly trying to create, you know, a, a rebellion against him, in which I would never do. But on, whatever that was that was happening, uh, we really tried to work on it, and it would resolve for a little while. But in his mind, it just always came back. Hmm. I was never going to be, again, the person that eager could trust as an ally. Hmm.
0: Was there a specific event that would you say kicked it off, or well,
1: it became so he had issues with my wife before I got married to her, hmm. and 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 so I think him feeling like uh, he'll never say this, but I suspect that in his heart, eager, uh, so many Slavic people can have a, a strange possessiveness about friendship and relationships. Hmm. You can't be his friend, you're my friend. As strange as that sounds, so there's a a friend I had in Kiev that I would talk to other people, and he would come up like, he would initially, I'm talking to you directly across from me, he comes up on my right like he's talking to you, and then gradually he edges over to where he's, you know, we're like three sides of a square. And then he starts turning his back towards you and edging in between us. I mean, this pattern of body language with remarkable consistency, you know, it's like he's just got to peel me a bizarre. Uh, this is definitely not all people, but this is something that you see much more frequently in that part of the world. And I think Eager's background, with I suspect, I don't want to psychoanalyze him to death. You know, it's kind of not fair to him. But for whatever reason, from his background, Eager had difficulties with trust and loyalty. Hmm. And when he trusted you and decided you were loyal, uh, that was a great compliment to you. But you could fall easily from that pedestal. And when you did, you might never get back. And that's really what it felt like to me. He could put me on a pedestal, you know, became disappointed. And it was things he would dislike that you could tell in his head, he would, whatever my action was that he disagreed with, he would translate that as a betrayal on some mm-hmm. emotional level, and I'm like, what betrayal? So there were a number of things, definitely the marriage, because my wife, if she were here, she would say, she knows she has some responsibility, then she was kind of immature, but uh, that, um, honestly, for a reasonably mature Christian without these emotional issues, it shouldn't have been a problem yeah, for eager. Yeah. So my last year in Sevastopol was the, all the ministry I did, and, and I, I kind of concentrated on discipling young men, and in particular, I started to feel more and more of a heart for sort of what, what, I don't know what we call them, young professionals or yuppies, because that was a new class of people in, in the, you know, you didn't have business really in the Soviet times. Yeah. So there was no, everybody that you would think was a businessman that was successful, that was some kind of corrupt, entitled mafia or government person. So the, the appearance of a class of young professional people, by which I mean, people who are smart and they want to succeed. But they're not trying to steal anybody's money; they just want to be effective, and innovative, and good, and make a living. To to someone of Eager's generation, which was just 10, 15 years older, it was difficult to really believe that, hmm. because every time they had seen anybody climbing, or rising to positions, it was always about corruption and control. Now, this this relates partly. I I doubt this is near as true now as it was. years ago but partly this is because especially among young men there were so few role models that were healthy there were not a lot of like I don't know who you would admire to say I want to be like him Yuri Gagarin the cosmonaut or you know there weren't a ton of all the men that you looked at now there could be people you know in your life a coach a friend a neighbor a father an uncle but there wasn't a a prevalence of well-known deeply respected living Russian men Hmm. I mean, you could go back to Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, or you know, he, most of history is Stalin and uh, uh, Ivan the Terrible and, and, and maybe like Lin- Peter the Great. P- yeah, he was a big chopper off of heads and. Pears How was Gorbachev? Stuff. Was he was Gorby all right? I, I, oh, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, a lot of people like him. Huh. A lot of people think he was a great guy. So um, anyway, all I'm saying is that my my last year in Sevastopol it was this constant sort of hoping we can get over this yeah and we couldn't really get over it and um it got crazy Yulia and i got married during this period of time and eager was instrumental in helping us get married cuz so we hit some we needed some pastoral counseling and he did a fine job of it you know it's the irony of you know like the, from the marriage he distrusted but he helped us to get married you know and he married us and uh and um I went, I went. back to the states. So our when well, and I decided after we got married that we're gonna we're gonna wait two years and then we'll start. Maybe we'll have a baby. And whenever we have a baby, we'll go back to the states and I'll do another year of seminary. That way, the child can be born in a medical system. Yeah. That's not using like pocket knives and coat hangers or whatever. You know? Yeah. And uh, so we did that. And then when we when we we study in Denver for you, we come back to Norfolk, where my sending church is, and say. Uh, And the church, I think, rather wisely said, Spencer, we're concerned. We don't think you should go back to Sevastopol. We just think that whatever's going on between you and Eager is just going to exacerbate. Now, But when we left to go back to the States, we we told everybody we're coming back to Sevastopol. That was our intention. So, I mean, what we told our church is like, okay, well, we'll agree. We won't go back to Sevastopol. We'll go to Kiev for the long term. But for six months... We got to go back to Sevastopol. Yulia's extended family, all our friends, all the loose ends—those people were going to feel like sort of betrayed if if we don't. If we don't show up again. Yeah. yeah. But uh, you know, now I wonder if you know the better thing would have been to go back for like two weeks, because because it did it turned it into another couple months of. I'll tell you that one of the stranger things. So, this group of guys I'm discipling—it's like six guys. It includes. Uh, a police officer um, a law student uh, a business manager i mean these are really plum excellent people to be discipling because they're receptive and they're intelligent and they have leadership skills and uh so I first come back and I meet with Eger and Eger's like, well, you know, you're not going to be starting it because you're only here for six. You know, he really wanted me to guarantee I was going to be only there for six months. Yeah. He goes, well, you're not going to be starting some new ministry or anything like that. I said, if I was going to do anything like that, it would only be after you and the elders all agreed. So these six guys that I discipled for like two years, all of whom respect Eger, come back to me. And uh, now I was at that time I had been mentored by a a pastor from Williamsburg named um, Dick Woodward. And Dick Woodward read a, a, like a 30 or 40 page book. I can't remember what it was, but it was an interesting, challenging kind of devotional book. These two or three of these guys come to me and say, hey, well, you're going to be here for a, a couple months, right? And he goes, well, can we like read a book together or something? I say, you know, as a matter of fact, I got this book that we could read together. That would be cool. So now in Eager's eyes, that was a betrayal. Because I had promised I wasn't going to start any new ministry. And I'm like, these are just like six guys that I was letting, you know. So, uh, Eager gets wind of this. And he calls me. Everything became increasingly like, weirdly authoritative, you know. He said, "Um, you're invited to the church council church council is the or the church committee it means the the elders board and uh this is a little bit like the grand inquisitor requires your presence you know the 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 way that it sounds i'm like well it's not can we talk to you about something you know it's it's funny because like the elder board is it's like two or three other guys that i've helped train them to be elders for like three years now i've gone away for a year had a baby come back and, and it's weird like this then he uh I come there and he says, well, we understand you're meeting with these guys and we don't like that. That has to stop. And, uh, why? Well, because you said this and you know, we couldn't be do that. And I said, I said, so here's the thing. If you guys are asking me for this, I can tell these guys, I won't meet with them anymore, but they're going to ask me why. And I'm not going to lie. I'm going to say the church council told me I can't, and they're going to say why. And all I can do is send them back to you. And they said, that's fine. I said, okay. But these guys, these guys love me like crazy. I mean, you can imagine the kind of relationship yeah, yeah, I have with yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so I, I, I tell, you know, they come to me and I'm like, okay, this is going to be the last time we, we can meet. What? Well, I thought we we're going to, are you leaving? No, no, I just, we just can't do something. Why not? Because the church council said, like, what? Why would they say that? And they're mad as fireworks. And I'm like, listen, I have to tell you no, and I have to step out, and I have to not explain, and I have to say you can go back there and, so they went back, and it was interesting because I remember I told Eager, I said, Eager, here's what I think is the right thing. These guys all respect you, and they are possible future leaders. Take the group. I'm happy to just sit there and nod. That would be awesome. I don't want that group. All these guys left the church, and um, yeah, that was really hurtful. So I'm, it's interesting the stuff I'm telling you. We're gonna have to think about how much we leave in. But uh,
0: well, the last one was like two hours long. So, oh wow! I mean, you you take as long as you want. We can, but I I know that it's. I don't want to keep you from dinner.
1: No, no, no. I'm uh. So I um. This is useful for me to kind of remember my life. You know. Um. So that's the last period. Leaving Sevastopol was kind of painful. I go to Kiev, uh, and my desire at that point is I want to keep working with these young professional people. And that's part of what made transitioning back to Kiev a bit easier, mm-hmm. because when, I, when I'm starting to feel increasingly called to this sort of young, professional, ambitious in the good sense of the word "group of people," And, and I'm increasingly seeing that the existing churches at that time really did not appeal to them. So my goal was to plan a, a church with mm-hmm. this group of people. And I moved to Kiev, and um, there's an association of churches starting. Uh, and it's, it, there's a whole lot of independent churches like, I don't know, probably a hundred or so across Ukraine. And legally they have a lot of difficulties because each of them is an independent, independent entity. So they're combining into a sort of denomination. I had a good friend that was helping start this and so they asked me to come on board and help them with that. I'm there for a few months and I'm wanting to start a church and I'm, so, so there are these weekly pastor meetings. There's like 25 churches in the city of Kiev that are in this denomination. So we'll have this pastor meeting on Tuesdays. And, uh, you know, there's anybody anywhere between six and 15 people show up. And um, we discuss different things. And so I'm getting to know these guys. And they're like, what are you here for? And I'm telling them, well, I really want to start. And so this, this older man says, Spencer, you want to start a church with young professional people? I said, yes. He goes, I have a church like this. And honestly, I'm getting too old and my health is not good enough. Come take my church. And, you know, I'm like, that sounds... I said, well, "I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll come preach at your church." So I preached a couple times, and it is small. We're talking twelve, fifteen people. I'm very well received there. So I rather too hastily agreed to this, and it was not a good marriage because this older man, who invited me in, was a bit manipulative and dishonest. I mean, what he's—I think that—and I suspect that in his mind he thought I was a much younger man. Who he could get to come in, he had like a little English training classes associated with the church that he had, like an evangelist. But it's this is with kids. But then you, from the kid, you reach the kids and their parents, and you know it all sounded fairly somewhat similar to what these ladies have done in Sevastopol. And I'm like, well, that sounds good. I can support that. And I think in his mind, he's really thinking. He was very big on control, and I thought I think that to him. He thought he had a foreigner that didn't know too much of what was going on, he was much younger, and he could
0: manipulate. basically get yeah, yeah.
1: manipulate me the way and then he didn't find me as easy to manipulate and he also began to switch into this very kind of hostile mode. And it's very bizarre. I remember there was a point at which it just became so crazy. The hostility became so weird. I mean at one point he like uh, he, he, he tries to have me sort of excommunicated. It's so bizarre. I mean, there's only like 12 people in this little church, and they all love me. I'm like, and I remember saying, Evgeny, if this is not going to work, I need to leave. No, you know, you, and you stay. And uh, and he says, I'm going to go to the denominational council and demand. that." And I'm like, Evgeny, you don't want to do that. And I'm like, you know, those those. I'm really good friends with all these guys, you know, the denomination. they asked me to help them help. Them. And he pushes this, you know, I remember just the, it is the stupidity. I'm like, you're just going to embarrass yourself. It's going to be unpleasant for me. And I remember him sitting there saying, and he's giving this case. And this is why Spencer should be asking me again. And there's like 20 seconds of silence. And like the three or four guys on the board, one of them says, so, so, so you we've heard what you're saying. And I, I haven't talked to anybody since you started talking, but I can tell you right now, the biggest question in our mind is not about Pat Spencer, it's whether you should be excommunicated. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, I tried to warn you, you know. And, uh, I mean, that's not a victory to glory in, you know. The whole no, thing was just uh, the unnecessarily The whole thing is embarrassing ugly.
0: for it's the It's just church.
1: embarrassing and ugly. Oh. And uh, it just went on. But listen, I mean, I'll tell you the other thing that made me mad. So this older man had been in this pastor's group for a while. And, I, I, and after he offers this to me, like the next week he does come, and I'm like, listen, he's offered me to work with him. I don't know him. You guys know him. What can you tell me about him? Is it a good, oh, yeah, no, I'm, I think that would be, that would be good. That would be great, you know? And then after it all went sour, I remember this one pastor friend, Maxine, telling me, oh, Spencer, I was afraid that was going to happen. I'm like, Maxine, you were one of the people I went to and I asked you. And, and he goes, yeah, well, you know, I didn't want to say anything bad. And I'm like, ah! You know, my brother in Christ, I love you, and I want to bash your head in with a large brick right now. You know, It's like a year. I can't describe the pain of that year. But, I mean, really, I attribute this to I was too hasty. Hmm. I was getting away from pain in Sevastopol. I was coming and looking for something, and I said, hey, here's the picture I want to paint, you know. And uh, honestly, it was really naive of me to be that easily manipulated. Oh, this is the picture you painted around yourself. Look at this picture. It looks exactly like your picture. I could stick you right in there. It would be awesome. You know, and now I'm, I'm looking, man, was I stupid, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And um, so that was very unpleasant. But um, most of my time in Kiev was pretty cool. I also, I was thinking about young professional people and how to reach out to them. And I, um, I joined Toastmasters. Now, Toastmasters, it's a good organization, you know. It's, it's a little bit like the Boy Scouts or something. It's I always think of it as kind of a a, a slightly nerdy thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they concentrate on leadership and public speaking skills and useful things. I always say nerdy. I'm not trying to talk them down at all. Good organization. No, I'm just saying, to me, it would have been unappealing if that was all it was. They're some of my favorite nerds. They are some of my favorite. They're great <laughs> nerds. And, uh, but now, here's the, the difference. In America, I think of it as this nerdy thing I'm not that interested in.
0: Yeah.
1: Now, in Ukraine, I begin to realize, I go to one to check it out. It's all in English. And I look around this room, and this is the exact contingent of people I want to know better. And now you think about it. I can't remember what we paid. Was it 10 bucks a month or $20? My point is, in Ukraine at that time, it was a bigger chunk of change. Yeah. It, it, it might be like me saying, I would like to invite you to join this club. This is going to cost you 100 bucks a month, and you pay 100 bucks a month for the privilege of giving public speeches in front of people who will criticize you, and it's got to be in a foreign language. I mean, sign what, me up. Yeah. Well, that's. The, I'm really what I mean to tell, explain in saying this is is what's so admirable in these people. This was the group of people that would say, "I can pay 100 bucks a month, speak long speeches in a foreign language, and be criticized by them. Yes. That's exactly what, yeah. Because they were extremely motivated, smart, young group of people, and uh, and I went in there. And so the way Toastmasters work is, you give a series of speeches on uh, different styles of speeches, and seven minutes long. And then there's there's somebody that sits there and counts every time you say ah, yeah, and all this, and then they critique your speech and they grade you and not that I'm a great public speaker, but I did two years of seminary and that included continuous training on public speaking. And Nate and my English is pretty good. So they were pretty happy to have me. And, um, the funny thing was, so I take this and, and I don't want to be overly spiritual because I I feel like it would kind of be disrespectful to the organization. But when I had an opportunity to do a speech of any kind, uh, I'm going to put a, a spiritual element in there. And, uh, I just felt like I saw amazingly good responses from them. Now, my, my friends, the, the pastors of these churches would tell me, Spencer, these people are not going to be interested, their career, they were so, they, they, I mean, there's a historical basis for that. Between the Christians and people who were successful and influential, there was a very stark barrier in in Ukraine and Russia. And so I think their thinking was, was the vestige of, of that culture that they grew up in. But I didn't find it to be true at all. And I think I told you one time I had to give a persuasive speech. And uh, and I stood up and I said, so b- because older and younger generations were so starkly different at that time in Ukraine, young people really disliked the idea of getting old. I mean, there was no possibility that the word old could be equated with good in any possible way. So I remember I chose one of my speeches and I said, uh, okay, I want to persuade you of something today. And you're not going to like this, but what I want to tell you is that growing old can be very, very good. You know, I mean, at that moment, all eyes were riveting on me. It's fucking blasphemy, you know. And I and I read, I started by reading from the Apostle Paul, where he's writing Timothy, and he knows his end is near, and he's like, "I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and in the future there is laid up for me a crown." And uh, it was interesting. So uh, I and I kind of. Explain, listen, I'm not asking you to believe in the things Apostle Paul said. I'm just saying, if you want to look at the pinnacle of success, here's this guy that has literally broken through every Roman empire with a message to which the officials in all these regions are hostile. And with such amazing success that we're still reading his words all over the world. And he knows what he's accomplished when he says, I have fought the good this. So here's something I want to tell you about how to grow old. Well, first of all, have a mission. Paul had a mission and Paul knew he had performed his mission. And anyway, I remember one of the guys comes up to me afterwards, very intelligent young man. And he says, Spencer, will you help me find my mission in life? And it just, it infuriates me that I'm meeting with pastors the next day and they're like, they're not going to listen. There's no point in you going to those groups. They'll never, (laughs) how many of you have had a young man come up to you and say, please give me a mission in life, you know? (laughs) And uh, so, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate. So uh, I had a really good time in Kiev, but what was happening to me, uh, I'm experiencing a sort of mental decline and I didn't know it because it happened so slowly. It was three or four more years before I realized I had a brain tumor. Mm. Well, a lot of things sort of, they don't go south in a horrible way, but there's like that, like that little church and that disappointment. There's just a lot of sort of disappointments. And there are a number of kind of ministries and efforts that I start to do, and then I kind of don't fulfill them. Hmm. And, uh, and it reaches a point where at the same time, Tabernacle Church of Norfolk had been functioning as my direct sending organization. And they're like most churches. For the most part, they don't do that. They they support through a lot of good, reputable missions agencies. And But the opportunities that fell together for what we did in Ukraine were very unique opportunities, and they were presented to us as a church and to our pastor. It wasn't easy to hand off. So we carried it as a church, and, and I personally feel very privileged. I really like that. I mean, when I communicate with other missionaries for different agencies, I always felt like I got it good. This is... You know, my feeling was that other missionaries tended to work for organizations. They were Christian organizations, but it was still an organization and manager and boss. And I felt like when I called back to my church and I said, I really need this, or I'm really struggling with that. Now, there was probably 75 or 100 other missionaries that church supported. But I think to many people in that church, I was unique in that I was their missionary. Hmm. And I, I just felt I was always getting benefit from this. And, and the responsiveness, you know, of the church when I had a need. There was nobody else that they felt like we can just expect this other group to take care of this. So uh, my point is, my church had become increasingly uncomfortable functioning as an independent agency all those years. And so they, they had been urging me for probably at least five years, they had been wanting me to find an agency, and they were like, we're going to back you, we're going to support you, we'll keep giving financially and everything, we just... Don't yeah. feel competent to do this, and I was always arguing with them. You're competent. <laughs> who is to judge whether you're competent? i'm on the receiving end of the competent you're competent <laughs> and, uh, and so we kind of had that argument and and uh but that what they wanted after sort of this disappointment with the with the one church discomfort with functioning as their own agency, they felt like those things combined meant Spencer. Let's do this. You know, it's been a few years. Come back, work in, come on the staff in Tabernacle Church, and be a, a on staff for say a year, year and a half. And during that time, go communicate with agencies, find an agency. My last years, there was a lot of good, but then there was disappointment, um, which mostly I think had to do with like a golf ball sized cyst growing inside my brain pan and uh uh-huh. yeah and uh yeah so that's you know those last years in kiev were pretty fun i mean i i was very often preaching at churches because it's exhausting to preach all the time so like 25 churches and they all like you so they're like come preach at my church that gives me a sunday off <laughs> you know? and uh and that was that was interesting to to do and um you know it was also fun uh a lot of things I did started like helping the denomination. Mm-hmm. So, those Tuesday morning pastors' meetings, they began having troubles, you know, because it's 25, 30 churches. And then some days there'd be like three or four pastors show up. And the people are disappointed. Oh, what are we doing wrong? Why is it people coming? I said, Well, I can tell you what you're doing wrong. This thing is totally unstructured. People feel like they can come an hour late because lots of people come an hour late. And, you know, and sometimes you end at three and sometimes you don't end at three. Sometimes you never actually end. People just kind of randomly go home. And and then it's all over the place. They said, well, what do you think we're supposed to do, Spencer? I said, well, you just have to run the meeting in a disciplined way is all I'm saying. Well, how would we do that? I said, so I know this is hard for you guys. For Americans, it's a little easier, but... Unfortunately, for this generation of Russian people, the, the leadership structures that they're familiar with are uh, two types. Type A is Stalin and type B is chaos. So mm. we're not Stalin, so we have chaos. And and it's taken a long time for Ukrainian Russian people in the church from that time to, to learn to function differently. So yeah. a lot of churches you would have, like we'll have an elders board in a Presbyterian church in America and... It's really understood that those elders are, are co-equal with the pastor, sort of, or have unique roles. And uh, a Ukrainian church w- or a Russian church would say that we're going to follow that model, and then they don't like you. Okay, you're off the missions. You're off the elders board. I kicked you out. <laughs> what? It, it seems like you're trying to draw me a picture, like you're doing this, but you still have Stalin. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You. This is fully democratic until Stalin decides it's not anymore. Well, uh, these pastors were not like that. But uh, all I'm saying is it was difficult for them to find the kind of the communication channel uh, that was sort of free and democratic, but didn't become very chaotic. So they're asking me, like, well, what would you do? I said, so what I think you need to do is you need to choose somebody and you need to make this person the dictator of the meeting. What's that guy going to do? Well, he's going to decide. You know, we talked. These are the three topics for today, and we're going to end it too, you know, <laughs> whatever, or, or whatever we're going to end. And uh, they would do that. And, and, and they said, Well, who would do that? I said, Well, you just need somebody. Whoever it is, you need to make sure that they feel empowered to do that. So just choose somebody from amongst yourself that you think can do that. So it's like 11, 12 people in the room. All 12 people look at me. So they appointed me the dictator of the weekly Ukrainian pastors' meeting. And, ah! Uh, <laughs> Which is okay. That was fine with me. And, and actually, you know, maybe that would be more helpful because somebody can show you, you can do this and still not be a, a jerk and, you know. But that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed those meetings and, and a great bunch of guys. I miss those guys. And um, so I had responsibility. That, that was a big part of my week, that Tuesday. Um, often I would preach on Sundays. For a while it was at the church I was pastoring. And then mm. as I left that, it was at, randomly at other churches discipleship that and the little church that I planted. So this older guy kind of went nuts about it, tried to have me, I mean, he's basically trying to blackmail me into staying and doing what he wants on pain of excommunication. And I'm like, I I don't think you have the level of influence that you think you have. But he was, there's just some weirdnesses you see in people from other cultures that grew up in communist societies that, I mean, it's normal to them. And um, so I had a good time. And then I came back to the States and I would say, the symptoms of my brain tumor were getting gradually more pronounced uh, over the next year or two until they got very pronounced.
0: What were the uh, the symptoms, if you don't mind me asking? So my cyst was
1: in the back of my head, and you have the centers of your brain that control digestion and balance. Mm. So you got to realize the whole brain, the brain doesn't have a pressure release valve. No. So when you have something ballooning and it's the size of a golf ball, in one sense, it's putting pressure on the whole brain. But then the balance and digestion. So from from mild stomach upset at one point to a year or two later, throwing up seven times a day. And I can't get food down and I'm getting emaciated. And then with balance, it, from occasional vertigo to, to really like walking down a narrow hallway and I need a hand on each wall to not fall down. And um, there was a long period of time where... Uh, all the doctors told me it was psychosomatic and um, and I had a doctor who was an elder in my church who was a great guy and so they all believed it was psychosomatic and and I, I told them I said I said I think something's physically wrong with me I said I am definitely not denying having psychiatric problems I actually have a nice little collection of them over here <laughs> I'm just saying that is not what's making me throw up fall down and can't get out of bed and uh, So the church, I remember at one point they wanted to, because this kind of thing does happen with missionaries, especially the reverse culture shock burnout. There are a lot of missionaries. And like I told you, I mean, I'm really not overstating it when I said I had a breakdown about the language and I had that you really, you really go through breakdowns. You just kind of come out of the other side. So this is not, I say this to say, it's not crazy to think that a missionary having all kind of mental and physical problems is having a breakdown and needs treatment. That was the, the conclusion my church made, and they were trying to send me to some kind of missionary burnout, psychological counseling camp in California that was like going to rebuild broken missionaries, and they told me they wanted me to do this, and I said, look, you guys are my elders, and if you want me to go to this, I will go, and, uh, and I can tell you I'm not scared of the idea because I'm just narcissistic enough. The the idea of me sitting and people analyzing me, that sounds kind of, you know, some people would freak that out and I'd be like, oh, wow, I'm going to be the center of it. It's just a foible, all right? So, I mean, I'm really not opposed to this. It almost sounds like a good time to me, but that's the weirdness of my psyche. What I I could tell him, I said, I said, what really concerns me is I don't think that's what's wrong with me. And I feel like you're about to lay down a big chunk of church's money. And they're like, Spencer, that is our decision. And I said, okay, so we were agreed on it. And like uh, a week or two after that, I got to where I couldn't get out of bed. Hmm. And uh, finally, after like five days of not getting out of bed, my wife kind of almost packs me into the car and takes me to the doctor. who was a, Dan Crabtree. He was a great guy. And he died of cancer like a year after this. It uh-huh. was a wonderful man. But he, he had basically, because it was the consensus of like a dozen doctors I had seen. Now, their mistake was that the first doctor I saw was a neurologist who said I needed an MRI. And that was the only thing that would have seen the brain tumor. And the insurance company, Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield, vetoed the MRI. So all the other medical moments after that start with the doctor looking at a list of specialists and seeing, ah, he's already seen their neurologist, so that's not it. So I went to an, oh, balance, we'll send you to an ENT guy. This, that, scan, Tessa, you know, there's nothing wrong with your ears, nose, or throat. Oh, you know, it's a, it's a. You can't keep food down, you need a gastroenterologist. You need to get scoped from this side and that side and you know. And uh, and then when and and then increasingly for doctors, they don't have time. So they they are vulnerable to sort of diagnostic catch-alls, like you have a, this is meant let me give you an antidepressant, you know. The the the, the hundred diagnoses that are in my basket that solve all problems for ninety nine point nine percent of my patients, when those don't work, I don't have time. And curiosity so I'm gonna pass you on so so it must be psychiatric you know and sometimes it is and I don't mean to put all doctors in the but I think the system is pushing doctors into this narrow thinking Uh, anyway uh, we went to see dr. Dan and uh, dr. Dan he gave me this injection of an anti-nausea drug which was wonderful it was the first time I didn't feel like vomiting in like six months and he told my wife he said well you know look I can put Spencer on the list for an MRI my insurance was different now. I had better insurance because the old insurance that nixed the MRI. The new insurance was likely to approve it. He said, I can put him on the list. I'll give him an MRI in like six weeks. He said, the only other alternative is to check him into the hospital. And Julia said, I cannot do six weeks of him in bed like this. I can't. He said, all right, well, check him into the hospital. Check me into the hospital. Did the MRI. The radiologist can't tell you anything. Check me into the hospital. I'll go up to the room. They send up a psychiatrist. I remember she was kind of a pretty lady. And she got into an argument with me trying to convince me I was clinically depressed. I mean, I've studied some counseling in seminary. I I know what clinical depression is. And she's like, you're clinically depressed. You need antidepressants. I'm like, look, I'll take antidepressants. But I'm telling you, I'm not clinically depressed. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. This is a good counter indicator. When the supposedly depressed person who typically goes into a kind of passivity where they're like, oh, okay. okay." When he's going, I (laughs) am not depressed. That's a good, you know. She said, I've seen many clinically depressed people, and I know you're clinically depressed. Okay, fine. <laughs> Whatever. And so she got I'm like, my, my head is pulsing right now, so I'm not going to keep arguing with you. I never saw her again. The next morning, the uh, neurosurgeon walks into my office, and he says, Spencer, I have good news and bad news. He said, what's that? He goes, well, the bad news is that you have a brain tumor the size of a golf ball growing in the back of your head. The good news is I've dealt with this kind before, and I'm more than 95% confident that I can get it out, You'll have some month's recovery time, and then you'll be fine, and you'll have no symptoms. And that's how it went.
0: I thought he was going to say, you're not clinically depressed. Yeah, well, no, I wasn't <laughs> clinically depressed. but He wasn't there for my
1: engagement with the psychiatrist. Uh. You know? No, I mean, depression is, is a serious thing, but uh, it's, it's also a very annoying thing to be accused of if that's not what you have. You know?
0: Yeah, yeah. You,
1: so after that, I mean, I was out of missions. I needed some months to recover. I restarted an engineering career, Yeah. and um, you know, here I am. Story of my life, in only
0: three hours. Still kicking butt at engineering. Do you have any favorite stories from uh, your missionary time or from your engineering? So what
1: I got a lot of is language stories. Remember, I told you, you you're, you're your your ego must best left behind. What's your What's your most embarrassing? Uh, language I'll tell story? you. I've got so many. You must pass through the wall of humiliation to learn the Russian language. So, so here's like. I remember uh, my first year. I hadn't literally mastered Russian. I'm learning it. I'm trying to speak it when I can, but I don't have enough. And I'm going to this. Uh, there's a International Baptist Church, which is run by the Southern Baptist Union, and I worked with them, preached there sometimes, this kind of stuff. I go in there, and there's these Russian guys I'm hanging out with at the back, and we're talking, and in my feeble Russian, and they're like, so "This is Sunday," and, like, and so my my girlfriend at the time was this Ukrainian girl Vika, who's now married to a Danish guy, and and she says, um. And, and the guy says, "So, what did you do yesterday?" And now, Vika and I, in the middle of the Dnieper River, there's a there's a, a an island called Hydra Park, Gidra Park. And so, we had been and hung out on the beach that day and been swimming on Saturday, They, "What did you do yesterday?" And I was like, "I'm swimming." And they're like, "Oh, you were swimming? Yeah, I was swimming. Were you swimming by yourself? No, no. Vika was with him. Oh, Vika was with you. Oh, yeah." Was Vika swimming? I'm sorry, are you kidding? I mean, Vika's a great swimmer. I mean, I swim okay. It's not like I'm going to sink, but like she trained in swimming from when she was a kid, and she can swim all the way across and back. So I was mixing up two words. The word swim is plavat, and the word plivat is to spit. So I'm saying, What did you do yesterday? I was spitting. Oh, you were spitting. Where? I was in the park over here. Were you spitting by yourself? No, no, Vika was with it. So Vika spits too? Oh, yeah, Vika spits. Are you kidding? She's a great spitter. She can spit all the way across and back, and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, (laughs) Many things like that. I remember uh, I love pizza. And uh, for years, there was no good pizza in Kiev. And then there was like one restaurant. And so at one point, this place opens up. And it's like uh, it's like, like these places in New York where sometimes you, you walk downstairs from the street. And uh, it was this little pizza on Tolstoy Square. And you walk in, and it is like a Domino's. I mean, there's like a little counter and a cash register. And then there's like a window, and you can see the kitchen behind it. But there's nowhere to sit down. Hmm. if I remember correctly. And I go in there and uh, I'm trying to say I would like two pizzas. So now if you want to call somebody a word like dum a or dipstick or something, yeah. you might use a word in Russian that sounds like this, two pizzas. <laughs> and it's, it's, uh, it's from the word tupoy, which means dull. So a dullard, you know, and, uh, I go in there and one of the most frustrating things in Russian, all the words change in English. We have a, we have a very strict word order. I see the pen. How do you know I is the subject? Because it's the first thing in the sentence. How do you know pen is the direct object? Because it's after the verb and this is inflexible. I hear the music. I, I walk down the street. I see the person. I, whatever, I built the house. Now in Russian, uh, the way you know the function of a word is not by its position in the sentence. It's by a suffix on the end, which can keep changing. So this here is a pen on the table. In Russian, that's ruchka. But here are the different ways I could see it. What is this? It's a ruchka. What do you write with? I write with ruchkoi. How many of those are there? Well, there's uh, one ruchka, two, three, or four ruchki or five ruchok. And uh, it... it so they're, they're, it's, it's on, almost and like and you get a big Excel spreadsheet in your head and, like, you want to say a word and you've got to go over to this column. All right, it was, the gender was neuter. All right, it, was, it was the genitive case, uh, but it was masculine and plural and uh, in the direct object function. Ah, uh, pen. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it's very frustrating. And now one of the most, I mean, I, I more or less got used to that. My Russian is pretty good. But what I'm still very frustrated by is the numbers. There are twenty different ways to say two. Dva, dwie, dwuch, dvoya, dvumya. I don't know necessarily twenty, but there's a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. And it's very hard to keep straight in my head. Because and so I go into this and I said, I would like dva pizza. And she giggles and she goes, Do you mean dviet pizza? Hee hee hee. And I'm like, Yes, you know, what you know, this many. I'm showing sure her face pizzas, you know. And she's laughing, she's like, so. Where are you from? And I was like, I'm an American. She goes, do you think Russian is hard? Because it's always been so easy for me. And I'm like, you know, I can't imagine why. And uh, she says, "So, so what's hard about it? I said, well, for example, the numbers. I said, in English, two, this is what two sounds like, two. Always, always, always. There is no alternate expression of two. It's just two. She goes, so how would you say this in Russian? that you wanted, in English, she said two pizzas. I'd say, two pizzas. Now, the, unbeknownst to me, she said, what? And I said, hello, two pizzas. Now, the guy in the back who's, like, covered in tomato sauce, and he's huge, is her boyfriend. And he has just heard me call her a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> twice. And twice, <laughs> and with emphasis, you know, when he's coming out. I had no idea who was mad at me. I'm, like, apologizing. I don't know what's going on, you know. Only like hours later, I'm like with a Ukrainian friend. I'm like, I do not know what happened. He said, what was the conversation? And what did you say? And you said, how did you say two pieces? I said, two pieces. They go, ah. <laughs> no, Spencer, you do not call someone this. I didn't call. I, I, she asked. I, uh, many, many things like that. Uh, one time I went into a restaurant in Sevastopol. There was no fast food. And then there was a little fast food place on the main street called Magic Burger. Which we always used to joke, you know, if you eat something and it doesn't make you sick, it's magic, you know. <laughs> it's a, anyway, it was the, it was just a weird little like a, it was like a, a food stand or something, and uh, I go in there, and the the menu. in a lot of Russian restaurants, the menus would be ridiculously big. Like, we have six thousand things. Uh, give me s- this sandwich. We don't have that. Can I have this one instead? We don't have that. How about this salad? We don't have that. <laughs> what? what do you, you know? What do you recommend? Uh, the uh, the borscht is very good today. I'll take it. You know, anyway, I go in there and they got all these different things, and I'm like, uh, uh, I'll try a slice of pizza. Now I had reason to be afraid of pizza because I've had bad Russian pizza before, and uh, every time, like at McDonald's, you know, they give you the food on a tray, and there wasn't a place to put the trays, so they, so they give me the piece of pizza on a little paper plate and that on top of a tray. And, uh, and I've got like two or three trays on my table. So I go back and I, and I tried it. I liked it. I go back for more. And I'm trying to say, um, I would like another piece of pizza, but no tray this time. I already have trays on my table. The word tray is padnos. And then there's a word panos which means diarrhea. So what I said was, i like another piece of pizza, but no diarrhea. I already have some of that on my table. What are you trying to say about our food? So there's, I mean, uh, those are just the ones I know about and remember, you know, it was. Military. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You don't know what slipped past. Oh my goodness. That's the way it is with
1: diarrhea. Right. So I, I'm telling you. And, uh, one time with my roommate, my roommate got a phone call. I'm trying to take a message for him. And this is when I had very little Russian. And she says, is Jonathan there? And I'm like, Jonathan, not here. Not Jonathan. Not Jonathan. Not here. Um, could you take a message? I'm like, okay, I think she said take a message. So I start looking around for a pen. And uh, I'm trying to say, I couldn't find a pen. I'm trying to say, I'm sorry, I don't have anything to write with. The word write is pisat. And there's another word, pisit, which means to pee. So I was like, I'm sorry, I have nothing to pee with. Oh, you poor boy.
0: (laughs) uh, You know? All right.
1: All right. We've got to wrap up at some point.
0: Yeah, we do. We do. Hey, thank you for uh, it was really cool to hear about, you know, foreign mission work. I think that it's a it's a, a black box for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and it's encouraging to, I don't know, just see what it's like out there and hear some encouraging stories. Do no. you think you'll ever go back?
1: I want to. And the reason I wouldn't consider it right now is because the ages of my kids and where they are in mm-hmm. school It would be tough for them. So I, I kind of hope that we can go back when our life circumstances change, you know.
0: Would you go back to the same general area, or
1: I would be happy to. Uh, I think it would be harder to learn another language. It's a shame to have this Russian and not be using it. At the same time, I think Russian and Ukrainian churches are kind of standing up. They don't. They don't need necessarily foreign missionaries. But sometimes there's a, a good function you can fulfill
0: that they can't. So, all right. Yeah. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. All right. Thank you for joining me today in this little social experiment continue the conversation, check out our app and connect with one of our volunteers or invite someone in your circle of friends to have a God-centered discussion and subscribe to the podcast, which should continue rolling out episodes each month. If you like what you heard, please be sure to recommend this to a friend and give us a positive review in the Apple podcast store. It really helps people find the show. As a bonus, I'll read a shout out to you in the next episode. And finally, please consider supporting this ministry financially. This program and our mobile app are only possible because of individual donors like you. Please, prayerfully consider adding this ministry to your regular giving schedule. We do all this work for free, but the app, the podcast, our outreach campaigns, they all cost money, and we need your support. Donate today at coffeewithachristian.org slash give. Coffee with a Christian is a registered 501c3. Thanks again for checking us out. May God bless you. In Christ be praised?